Welcome to Gen Z Hoops, the Gen Z basketball coaching and sports business show. On this podcast, you'll learn from professional players, coaches, and executives from all over the world and see the court in a brand new way. And now, joining you courtside, your Gen Z host, John Hartafillis. Coach Oliver, how are you? Very good. How are you? Doing great. Really excited to have you on this 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 show. Um, this episode has been in the makings for a long time, and it, it's so awesome to talk to someone that's such a, a pioneer in the analytics space, such a remarkable coach, someone that I, I really looked up to as a young coach and, and learned so much from, even without meeting you. Now that we're actually meeting for the first time on Zoom, so thank you so much for coming on the show. And I really can't wait to jump into your career and, and all the things you've learned from it. Sure. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Awesome. So to get us started, I'm, I'm curious if we're going back to the beginning. Um, I've, I've heard a lot of you talking about um, your, your time at Caltech, um, playing all, all these different things and the, the, how, how that really garnered your interest for not just basketball, but also the analytics side of things and how you kind of use it as an edge back at a time when, when people really weren't seeing analytics as such a, as such a, as such a powerful tool. Um, can you kind of take us back there and, and, and explain to us what that, 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 those early days for you were like um, in this basketball world? Funny, not a lot of people talk about Caltech basketball, huh? <laughs> um, it's, yeah, me and, and Greg Popovich. Greg Popovich was actually a coach in the same conference with me when I was there my freshman year. I think he uh, left to go join Kansas my sophomore or junior year when I was at Caltech. But um, yeah, so going to a Division three school for academics, all the, the math and science that was there, was math, science, engineering school, was a great opportunity for me to play basketball and think technically, learn all sorts of things at the same time. So everything was rolling around in my brain all at the same time. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about how to be a better basketball player. And I naturally think defense, actually. Um, I think defense, the system of how players basically work together to, to defend the rim, because it's not, a, it's not an individual thing. Offense is much more an individual thing. Uh, the fact that I was thinking that way about basketball, but also thinking about engineering systems and how how the math works uh, to make systems work. Certainly those things were all rolling around in my brain at the same time. Uh, I had opportunities when I was uh, both player and then moving actually after my sophomore year, I, well, I couldn't shoot. So moved on to the coaching staff and moving on to the coaching staff, I was recording stats, but I had done this a little bit on my own in, in the past and just charted games. Uh, in fact, when I was out at Caltech, I, I just started writing lines of what happened in a game and realized it was actually a very useful structure for seeing the game. So it, there were a lot of little things that came together there, the logic and the basketball that really came together. Oh, of course, and that's what's what it's so interesting to think about. Um, that now, now we nineteen-year-olds are in Gen Z, but back then, just being a, a young coach, um, young player, trying to get into into these things and, and using it as a tool to separate yourselves from the competition is is so interesting. I mean, I know most people don't talk about Caltech, but I, I do try to do as much research as possible to make sure that we we dive straight in um, and don't and don't and don't leave any stone unturned. Um, kind of moving on from there, in a little bit of chronological order, because the story, of course, is so interesting. Um, when it comes to working with a legendary assistant coach like Bill Burke at UNC um, and, and taking lessons from, from, from there, whether it's analytics side, analytics side, the coaching side, and of course, while analytics are your main thing, you, you have obviously been coaching um, and, and, and in a more broader sense. Um, 
from someone that's got to legend as an assistant coach, what, what did that kind of teach you and how you can use the data you've made to help make the head coach's job easier? It was not a simple thing because uh, really to do what I was doing for Bill and, and his wife, who was running the scouting service at the time, really, it was, it was, they had a 40 page packet of advanced scouting material, um, side out of bound plays, baseline out of bound plays, um, how they ran zones, what they did in different situations. Uh, it was, and then personnel evaluations, descriptions of all these. It was a massive packet. And I think everything is, is still kind of massive. And how you apply numbers to every single one thing in there, you can't. You end up, you end up doing things with your basketball brain. And I did a lot with my, the basketball side of my brain for what Bill was doing at first. But I realized that the basic tools that I had at the time, which were per possession stats, uh, which were some basic individual offensive efficiency stats and basic individual defensive efficiency stats, those were guides. Those were things that wouldn't tell me what, uh, what baseline out of bounds play or what what plays they ran or how efficient they were at them. But they gave me a guideline. They, they showed me a little bit about, okay, who were the better players, who were the worst players, who were the players that shot a lot, who didn't shoot a lot, used a lot of possessions, not, not just shooting, because you get a pretty good sense of that, but who's turning it over on a high rate, those kind of things. So I had to fit the, the very mathy side to the very traditional side that, that Bill always talked about. And it turns out well, he didn't really initially guide me when I would turn in a report. Uh, he saw it as extremely thorough and gave me uh, very helpful feedback on that. Um, and we definitely had plenty of conversations about how, I guess in LA, even Pat Riley used very basic mathematical formulas for evaluating players, kind of in the way I was, just mine, mine were different. He very much appreciated the fact that you could bring the numerical side to the traditional side. And, and that, that was useful feedback when you're, when you're a kid, you're a 21 year old kid. Of course, and it's so important to think about the the marriage between the two, the traditional and the and the advanced stats, um, and how you can use both in synchrony. Because of course, there's so much discussed about are we going too deep, or or, or, or where are or where do, what are these sets actually telling us? So it's of course so important to think about how um, to look at them um, beyond the value of the number and in the context that they, that they live in. Um, obviously, when it, when it comes to when people think about you, everyone jumps to think about basketball on paper. It's it's kind of the the holy grail of of basketball analytics. Um, as a, as, a, as a physical manifestation of it. Can you talk about the process of writing that book, um, whether it's kind of coming out right around the same time as Moneyball, right, a few months after that? What did that whole process look like for you in, in writing the book? Did, is it something you knew you wanted to do? Was it um, kind of reactionary to the way the game was going? What, what did that whole thing look like for you? It was a, comp, it was a combination of factors, of course. Uh, I was working as an engineer at the time. I knew I had a bunch of good ideas. And being inspired by Bill James for many years, I thought like, well, I can write, I can I think I can write. Um, I want to tr give it a try sometime. And when you say you want to give it a try sometime, sometimes, sometimes never comes. And it turns out uh, I was 
putting together kind of basic notes and things like that. And I emailed Bill James and asked him whether he could help me. He said, well, maybe, why don't you send me some of your material? So I sent him, I emailed some of the material that I had, the book, uh, plenty of, plenty of chapter, uh, a few sample chapters and things that I had actually put out on the web. That was right before 9-11 in 2001. So I didn't hear back from him right away. And 9-11 kind of made the whole world stand still for a while. So I, I went back to him about three months later, four months later, 2002, I guess it was, and asked him whether he could help me following up on my old email. He said, actually, he was going to write his own book on basketball. And I said, uh-oh. Uh, I gave him my basic material, and now I got to beat Bill James. So I almost, it was in the middle of and I almost quit right then and there. I almost went over to my boss and said, I, I've got to beat Bill James and everything like that. I slept on it. Uh, I went in the next day, and I, I decided I would tell them either I need to take time off or I will quit. And I had to explain to my boss that I'd been doing things outside in basketball for many years. I had to explain who Bill James was and that I had to write this book. And uh, it was, it was a, it, in many ways, it was the best move I could have ever made. And it was, it was a risky thing to do, but it was, it was worthwhile. I, I had never written a book. And so the experience of, of doing it and living up to my own standards, the standards of, okay, I want this to be communicated reasonably, but I want it to have enough detail in there that people can learn from it. I want to write this, I basically want the, to write this for a smart basketball fan, someone who's, who also, I mean, I had been around a lot of engineers and, and scientists and things, and they love basketball. I went to grad school at UNC. Everybody there loved basketball. And all the people in my environmental science and engineering program, they love basketball. And I knew how to talk to them. So I wrote the book in many ways, imagining I was talking to them. That that was the prof, that was the general thought process, and uh, then I wrote an outline in one amazing afternoon uh, where I was incredibly inspired. I went through the daily process of writing and editing. It was it was something else. Thank you for going so in depth on the process behind the book because everyone sees the book as what it is and then forgets what what it took for that book to come to life and 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 the backstory behind it obviously brings it to fruition in my mind as to how much that book mean, means to you and in, in your life. Um, and obviously to the stack community as a whole. I'm kind of curious thinking about um, with that book, obviously it was, it was written, um, closing in on, on 20 years ago. So much change in the game since then. And we'll of course talk about all those trends um, later on in the show. I'm curious too, is there anything that um, in the book that maybe you, you, you noticed definitely holds true today that maybe you thought would happen that that did or any, any kind of trends that you, you thought back in 2002 would happen and, and you saw them come to fruition? I certainly think that um, the overall structure of the game hasn't changed. I, I think what you're witnessing with the three-point revolution is something that was predictable at the time. And that, yeah, the, the whole fact that three is bigger than two makes some sense and we, we adopted it. Um, but I'm actually, I think, I, I criticize the book more for some of the things that didn't hold than, uh, than for the things that have held up. I feel like even though basketball is different now in some superficial ways, and best basketball is different at the NBA level than it is at the high school or college level or um, international, all of these kind of things. Uh, a lot of the truths in there maintain uh, are still true to the game of basketball. 
unless they dramatically change the rules, a lot of that is going to remain the same. De definitely. And, and it, it's still incredible to think about just how everyone talks about how much the game has changed, but also how much it has stayed the same throughout that same amount of time. Um, I'm also thinking about maybe after writing the book, um, that's when you kind of mostly started um, all those, all these different uh, jobs in the league, as a, whether it's as a consultant, as a director of quantitative analysis, all these different hats that you maybe wore. Uh, the one job that stuck out to me was when you were with the Sonics, right when they had uh, Ray Allen those, those last few years with him. Um, and everyone always talks about how, of course, he's still the all-time leader in three-pointers made, but he could have maybe made so much more if just the style of play was different back at the time because he, he was shooting a high percentage, but not shooting maybe the, the quantity that a Steph Curry is shooting now or someone to that effect. Um, what, what did you notice when you when, when you were with that team, seeing them every day and, 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 behind, and really manning their stats department as to what they, they were doing to at, at, at that time? And what, what, what would kind of be the difference now if they, if they were to kind of teleport uh, to this era? I remember going in and, and first of all, being overwhelmed by the fact that, oh, okay, I'm working for an NBA team, but being surprised. We were not picked to be very good that year. We were picked to be near the bottom, if not the bottom of the Western Conference, that Seattle team. Uh, it was a bad year the year before. And I got in there and I felt like, okay, Ray is, is very talented, great shooter. Uh, we have Rashard Lewis who can shoot it. Uh, and then Vlade Rodmanovic shoot it and we had Antonio Daniels who could get to the rim extremely well Antonio Daniels was actually one of those undervalued players at the time who looked like okay we we've got pretty good talent here uh, I, those are the things that I generally saw and I felt like yeah we we can enhance a little bit our personality by en enhancing and this is true in general you try to bring out the best the players you got and you try to hide the worst things of them and i felt like we had that kind of combination to be able to hide the worst things about our players and enhance the best ones and so it's not that i had a huge say in any way you know how that team was coached but i did feel sometimes you feel like when you go in if you're saying things from a numerical perspective a different perspective than the coaching staff and that, and from the, the management, but it's coming, it, it's such a, but it agrees that makes them feel a lot better about it. And so you're kind of reinforcing their good instincts. And I felt like in many ways, that's what I had to do. And I think it worked out pretty well then. So it was a consequence of having good talent, the right talent that fit, and then just reinforcing what, what Nate and, and Rick Sund and those guys were thinking it's, it's it's awesome thinking about the the role that you played on that on that team and and how maybe the coaching staff and the status department um, work together to, to to find success um kind of still on, on that thought of moving kind of chronologically through both your career but also kind of just seeing how it's gonna uh, of course the themes of how things are going to change i'm curious about your your, the, your five years with the nuggets um with Melo in those last few years with him of uh, 2006-2011 um that, that that now that title though of uh, director of quantitative um, analysis. That's something maybe that didn't exist, I would imagine, before 2006 um, or before that, where now only starting to come into the forefront. Is, is that, is, is, what did that kind of that position look like um, in terms of making that move to the Nuggets? Um, what what did, you, did your role change there? How did, how did that all uh, look for, for you? It's funny you mentioned title. So I've always believed when I got into this that um, I don't care what my job title is. I don't care about the job title. 
after about an MBA title. And I've said that, I believe that. Director of quantitative analysis was a way to fit the skills that I had into an organization. I believed it was my job to, in many ways, do what every other person in the organization was trying to do, which was their specific job, um, answer basketball questions. Uh, the GM trying to answer who are the best players in the draft, who, who to trade, how much to pay people. On the coaching staff, what are they trying, what can we do to exploit the weaknesses in an, an upcoming opponent, opponent? How do we enhance the players that we've got? So my, I didn't, that was the job that I had. I didn't care what the title was, as I said. It was just, I wanted to answer basketball questions using the perspective that I had. Of course, yeah. thinking about just how the game kind of transitioned um, in, 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 in turning into where roles like that were, were starting to take shape. Thinking also um, kind of more to what you're doing now, maybe with the Washington Wizards, I'm curious as to now with all those years that have gone by, how have you seen maybe just, just stats have become such a forefront, especially in, in the Wizards organization with people like Brett Greenberg, I mean, so many other um, really analytically driven minds um, at, at, the, at the helm of the, of, of the Wizards franchise. How do you see that the team is really starting to buy into to what analytics can do? I, I think there's always a, a, a process. Here. My, my job is to be ahead of the game and everything and also teach it. So in some ways, it's a, it's a professor's job. Your, your job is to uh, both win the Nobel Prize and teach 18-year-olds uh, who come into college kind of thing. And, and hopefully, and, and they progress. And I, I feel that's, that's where we are. I've been able to teach a number of the coaches. I've connected with some of the players and certainly management, which came in with some understanding uh, of analytics itself. Um, my job is to keep teaching, make them smarter. I believe on a regular basis, if, if there are questions that come of me of analytics or even kind of basic stats, if there's someone else in the room who can answer the question first, that's what I want. I don't want to be necessarily the, the, the first. I, I just want to be, I want other people in the room to be able to answer these questions. So my job is to teach all these people uh, as much about what I do and I and feel confident that as much as I teach them, there's still a lot more uh, to be done by me, by them. Whether you call it a mentorship role or whatever, teaching role, I'm certainly just trying to broaden the knowledge. And I think it's going, I think it's going pretty well. There are definitely plenty of tools that I have that haven't been, I haven't exposed to a lot of people because the tool itself sounds really complicated and dangerous maybe, but I use it, I translate it into basketball language. It's, uh, it's funny, so when I got this job, Herb Livesey, Herb Livesey is a scout for the Denver Nuggets. A friend of mine who, he taught me a lot when I was there. And he told me, you don't want to go in with guns blazing. You don't want to show everything right away because people will just get overwhelmed. And, and there's also this danger of overcoaching in many ways. If you tell people every little thing, a lot of times they don't need every little thing. They only need certain things. So I've kept that in mind. I want to make sure I'm introducing the right things at the right time, not everything all of the time. Definitely important to, to keep that in mind and, and make sure that you're 
kind of you're you're not really overwhelming people with with so much and and fifty page reports with with so much information. I'm curious though, thinking about maybe that that smaller piece of information that, that that's quick and accessible, uh, maybe during games. I'm I'm curious maybe with you on the bench, what does that look like? Maybe mid game making adjustments quarter to quarter in terms of the 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 guys at the table printed out, bring over the advanced stat sheet. How do you guys really read that um, as a coaching staff to make these quick fire decisions going from the first to the second and, and all these different uh, quick fire decisions that may be made during the course of a game? Uh, I, I would actually say that quick decisions during a game are probably the toughest thing to to make an, an analytically based quick change on. Um, you may have, hopefully, analytically, you've done work before the game. And so you've got under, some understanding for, say, a, a pick and roll coverage and whether it will work. And you're torn because the numbers themselves sometimes are not clear. And so hopefully you go in and you have an idea like, okay, we'll start with this one and then we'll change it to the other one if we see some characteristic of what's going on, whether it's a defined thing like they score five out of six against us on, on that coverage or something like that. That's, that's the kind of thing that really gets done. It, hopefully it's not a simple analytical thing because in a game, I mean, Frankly, especially a first half or a first quarter, that's a small sample size. And unless you're real, uh, our eyes at this point in a game are seeing the process better. We know there are times where you see shots go in and they shouldn't go in. So if you're doing the analytics only based on whether the shot is going in, then you're probably going to do it wrong. So you, you have to be measuring the process better during a game and that that's what our eyes do that's what the coaching eyes do analytical eyes can do it too and hopefully because of my training i, I can avoid some of the mistakes uh, understanding some of the biases and stuff looking for things that people don't necessarily look for which is we we do look at shot quality but i know that shot quality is more than a simple factor of how close the defender is there's a lot of things that go into Hundred percent, and and there's definitely so many nuances to to all these different things, but definitely making sure um to keep it simple to not overreact. Maybe when after for, for, for a few possessions where teams maybe just make shots, um, definitely important to to keep that to keep that in mind. Thinking about maybe how you actually go about um, obtaining these stats, I'm curious as to, of course, so many teams that may use synergy, second spectrum, all these different. Um, ways of, of getting these stats um, for, for the common for the casual fan that maybe doesn't um, know, know these things how do you think is that what do you think is the, the way that most teams use the, the, the best and, and how does that all get into your lap when you're when you're um, analyzing them um, for the team success <laughs> uh, yeah data there is a lot of different data sources out there and uh, I think one of the dangers that people fall into is we can't answer that question we need more data one of the things I, I don't think I did a very good job in with, with basketball paper was um, illustrating that it's not just the amount of data you have. Basketball on paper was written without really play-by-play, -play, certainly without all the player tracking and synergy data that exists now. And being able to extract insights from less data means thinking logically about basketball. So that I, I want to preface all of this with that. Think a lot about the data you got before you ask for more. Because frankly, 
synergy, the player tracking data that comes from Second Spectrum is also uh, it's hustle stats that now come from the NBA. There's a number of individual private that give you other information about what's going on in the game. And it can overwhelm you if you don't have a good structure for what to do with it. You, you have to, to really think about it. And you don't want, in my mind, you don't want a lot of people saying that was, for instance, that was a good contest or that was a good defensive possession or that was a bad defensive possession. There are people who do that. They will go and they will grade every single possession. And it's not necessarily the best thing because it doesn't tell you the why. So all this data out there that is provided, fortunately, to us in the NBA uh, at a price, of course, but is great because I've thought a lot about how to use it. And that's, that's what I would encourage people to do when it comes to data sources. Think first about what questions you're trying to answer and what kind of data you would actually want for that before you say, oh, I just need more data. And frankly, a lot of people who want to get into this field, you're probably going to have to get into this field at the high school level, um, maybe at the college level or the G League level or international level where not all this data is available. And so think very carefully about what it is that you want and how you Definitely at the, at the high school freshman level, for example, when I'm trying to do any sort of possession-based stats, it, it's looked at as kind of a, like, it's from, like it's from another planet, just because that's not what's normally used. But that's kind of the only way to try to um, bring any sort of understanding and to try to develop, um, and, and whether it's in players, whether it's even in myself, to kind of try to advance that. I'm curious, when, we, when, when most people think about analytics, and maybe even listeners to the show up to this point, they've only thought of shooting. Uh, any, anything based on the offensive <laughs> side of the ball. Um, and people kind of forget that, that there's another half of the, of the ball called defense and that there's also stats for, for that too. Now, while blocks and steals don't tell the whole story and, and, and in most cases, not even remotely close to, to even a sort of picture of what a good defender is, can you kind of touch on what some of those more advanced defensive stats are that, that you think actually we can take value from and, and, and use to figure out who actually play, uh, does a good job on defense? Uh, I, think it's, I think defense is hard. There are metrics out there that do it. I think it, it ends up being a little bit, um, what are you trying to accomplish with the defense? You're trying to make sure that no one scores on you, right? It's not, it's not just the star. It's not just maybe there's three-point shooters and you're trying to take away threes. Frankly, what I generally encourage people to do is you know what your defense is trying to accomplish. Maybe you are trying to take away the paint. Maybe you're trying to take away threes. If you're trying to do both, you better have a very clear structure for how you do it and measure the things that you are trying to do. You establish goals, you establish process. So try to measure that process. And uh, I, I would say that's true at the MBA level, although we do have the benefit of extra data so that you can see you can look into these questions of, okay, this guy, we can look at who's matched up on who. Frankly, that is hard to do without, if you can't do matchups, doing them by hand over the course of the game is exhausting. It's a ton of work, but it is useful. Um, seeing whether guys match up well against other types of players, that kind of thing is very helpful. But otherwise, lacking that, say you know what your goals are for defense and say those things and maybe you can't 
can't measure everything I'm talking about. Maybe you do want to limit X. You want to keep the opponent's point guard out of the paint for this game. Maybe the next game, it's a little bit different. Measure the things that your defensive goals are, and that will get you down the road towards more general stats. Very well put, because a lot of times coaches maybe might say what their, their objectives are, and then there's no way of track. They, they don't track it the way they should, so the players can understand what exactly they mean and what exactly is our objective, um, which, of course, could, could lead to the kind of discrepancies between a miscommunication between what coaches really want their players to understand and what players are really um, getting at. Thinking about kind of just we've we've spoken about so much about where, where the game's gone to this point, um, but there's of course so much more basketball left to be played and, and so much and so many more revelations to happen and and, and the, for the for the world of analytics now that it's finally opened up to to really expand and 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 become a huge part of uh, an even bigger part of the game than it is now. Um, what are some of those if you if you had to kind of guess as to what those tr those trends might look like in the next five ten years? Um, what are the biggest trends analytics that you think uh, might really start to take shape? Uh, that's always a good question, a tough question, because in some ways I can't answer it. To protect what I think I'm, uh, what I should be protecting, if I do see an important trend that we need to be ahead of, I'm not going to tell the public about what that is. So in general, I do think that uh, we understand a lot on offense. I think there are probably some things that could be done better. But uh, certainly focusing on, on defensive stuff and interactions among the players, it's very hard. I think that sort of thing, if people take a stab at it, you can do it. I think there is this element of passing. Where do assists come from? I've, I've put that one out there many times before. People talk about hockey assists. I think sometimes hockey assists are exaggerated in, in their importance in the NBA. But sometimes there are ones that really matter. And if you're looking for how an offensive play or an offensive system work, I think there are some things that can be done with that too, which is along the lines of passing. Are there, are these useful passes or not? That, that kind of stuff. Definitely. And there's so much to take from, from all of these and, and definitely so many ways that the, the, the game, it's, it's, it's incredible to think of how much the game can change and, and, and the different nuances that we could kind of learn as time goes on. So Coach Alvin, thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, really, yep. um, and to when it comes to someone that, 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 that is really just, just everything when it comes to analytics, um, really, you're the first person that comes to everyone's mind. It's, it's an honor having you on the show to, to, to spread that knowledge. So thank you so much again. Uh, yeah, glad to be here. I'm glad you let me wear my Hawaiian shirt. It's, I don't wear it that much. So. <laughs> anyway, yes, um, certainly best of luck to you and, um, and your followers at this point. I think, uh, yeah, it's good to have this kind of show for a lot of people out there. It's, it's a big field. It's a growing field. A lot of people learning math and science to do this. I can tell you when I was a kid, I never dreamed that I'd be able to use math and science to, to be in sports like I am. And I'm sure there's a lot of kids who can now dream of that. Thanks for listening to Gen Z Hoops. Make sure to follow, like, and subscribe on Instagram, LinkedIn, and all major social media platforms at Gen Z Hoops. You can tune in and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and every other podcast platform on the planet. Get ready for the next episode.